The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, broadcasting from the Maple Knoll Radio Network here in the greater Cincinnati area. We're your public radio source for information and inspiration to start or grow your own real estate investing business. And good news for WMKV and WLHS. I received my copy of the Maple Knoll brochure this week and discovered that you are now the second most listened to nostalgia radio sh- station in the country, according I to the. It was the, the, city. the <laughs> well, I, I did read that and I thought, and that is of a pool of how many total stations, but. Nonetheless, it's nice to be recognized, and I know most real-life real estate listeners aren't aware that there's all sorts of other neat stuff going on here on the Maple Knoll Radio Network when Vina's not on, and they're not listening to it on their computers at wmkvfm.org, but it's a fun thing to keep on all the time if you like big band music and trivia and all sorts of fun things that are broadcast out of here. This is question and answer week on Real Life Real Estate. On the last Wednesday of every month, we try to make it a habit to leave the mics open for listener questions because I know that uh, during the rest of the month, we have these topics, we have these experts. Sometimes you have a question that the expert's not really that conversant in because it's something different than what they're experts in. And so we give you a chance once a month to just sort of get it out of your system. What questions do you have about real estate, about buying finance, management, tenants, rehab, uh, notes, anything that interests you? Today is your day to ask that question. Now you can do it a couple of ways. You can call in. If you're here in the greater Cincinnati area, you'd call 513-772-9658. You can also call toll-free from any place in the continental United States at 877-772-9658. You know, I bet that number works in Hawaii and Alaska, too. I bet it's not just the continental United States. I bet it's the entire United States can call in at 877-772-9658. Or you can go to our website, and there's a question and answer form there that says, Ask Vina a Question. That is askvina.com, and if you'll go there and just fill in the little form that says Ask Vina a Question, uh, hit send. We will get it here, although beware there's a delay, of course, in the emails of, you know, 5, 10, 
minutes. And sometimes we don't get to those questions just because they come in after the show is over. So again, question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. Lots of folks like to ask their questions in advance to make absolutely sure that I get them before the show comes on. For instance, Carrie from uh, she say she's from Chicago, but she does say she's from Illinois, says, uh, just curious what you think of all the gurus slash speakers, even other investors, saying the only way to find deals is direct mail. Seems like most of the investors in these online groups are complaining that there are no deals on MLS. Au contraire, I had lunch last week with a guy in Chicago who is rehabbing over 200 deals a year, and he said about 90% of his deals are coming from MLS. Plus, I know a handful of other rehabbers in the Chicago area buying great deals off the MLS. Well, Carrie, anyone who ever says the only way to achieve X is Y is probably, strictly speaking, incorrect. So if uh, if you've heard folks say the only way to get deals is through direct mail or through the internet or through the MLS or whatever follows that phrase, the only way, uh, they're, they're perhaps being not quite as literal as you may think because... Uh, in any market, there's deals to be found in MLS. There's deals to be found via direct mail to motivated sellers. There's deals that one can find by using the internet or Craigslist or whatever the case may be. The question isn't really where are all the deals. The question is where are the most deals concentrated? And I am in the school of these, quote, gurus slash speakers who say that direct mail is the best way to find deals right now because that has been my experience and the experience of a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of people that I work with. When the bank-owned properties um, started becoming fewer and fewer in MLS, it became the case that um, they they were more and more hard fought over and that they sell more quickly, much more quickly than they did a few years ago, and for a much higher percentage of the actual after-repaired value. One of the questions I had when I first read your question was this fellow who's doing 200 deals a year, uh, in in what niche? Because while the the sort of rental area and bread and butter area MLS inventory is way down, from where it was just a few years back. There are some niches within the the for sales in the MLS that are not as competitive. I mean, if this guy's rehabbing condos, uh, he's not competing with a lot of other people looking for condos in MLS. If he's uh, rehabbing luxury properties, he's not competing with a lot of people for those luxury properties. And I would also wonder whether he perhaps has some connections with agents that might allow him to, uh, let's just say, get first shot at those MLS properties. He may be hearing about them uh, just prior to the time that they went on the market for everyone else. Uh, it might also be that his uh, his particular business structure is such that he can pay the prices that people are paying for MLS properties without not without like losing money. On those deals. I mean, if he's if he's uh, getting his rehab work done very inexpensively, if he's not looking for the typical profit 
that somebody might look for for buying, fixing, and selling a, selling a property, but maybe a little bit less because he's got so much volume going. Uh, it's entirely possible that he is one of those people who is buying properties out of MLS for more than I personally would want to pay for the amount of risk that one puts into a rehab deal. So there's 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 lots of moving pieces to your question, but the bottom line is the the best answer to almost any real estate question is it depends. Uh, and and it drives folks crazy when they ask a a mentor or a coach or a, a self-styled expert how something works and the person says it depends. And so uh, many times people will, will 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 have a very definite literal answer like there are no deals in MLS that is not the whole picture because explaining the whole picture as you just saw takes 10 minutes so thank you very much for your question carrie you're listening to real life real estate investing it's question and answer week you can ask any question you have about real estate investing from getting started to getting rid of your properties to whatever you whatever whatever's been on your mind 877-772-9658 is the number to call or you can go to our website askvina.com Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I am your host, Vina Jones-Cox. And if you happen to be listening to the sound of my voice through our podcast on iTunes, remember that Real Life Real Estate is also a live radio show. It broadcasts on Wednesdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time at WMKV 89.3 or WLHS 89.9 FM in the greater Cincinnati area or live streaming during that same period of time anywhere in the entire world at wmkvfm.org. Also, don't forget WMKV and the Maple Knoll Radio Networks when you are thinking about your charitable contributions from your wholesale deals. You're doing that, right? You're setting aside 10% of your profits from your wholesale and retail deals to give away. Well, this is public radio, ladies and gentlemen, and that makes it listener supported. And that means that if you want to continue to hear the melodious sounds of my voice month after month and year after year, somebody's got to pay for this station to run. So you can go to WMKVFM dot org at just about any time and make even a small pledge in gratitude for the station carrying this and a lot of other great programming you can also uh, use the amazon.com button there on the station site and anything that you order in the way of real estate books etc through that link some of the uh, money is then given to WMKV as a nonprofit organization. So remember that next time you order on Amazon, go to WMKVFM and use the button that way. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate Investing. That means whatever question you might have, this is a great opportunity to ask it because I got nothing to say without your questions. You can call in at 877-772-9658. You can go to our website, which is askvina.com. I suddenly forgot the name of the website, just like blanked on the website. It's askvina.com, A-S-K-V like in Victor, E-N-A.com. You can send questions through our response forum there. Uh, Anything you want to know about stuff you've heard here on the show, stuff you've heard out in the world, stuff you've heard at your real estate association, 
today is the day to ask it. Uh, And then there's the folks who really, really, really just want to have an entire discussion on something and that so so this email came in this is from Wynn. Wynn says can you talk about buying defaulted notes that's the whole question can you talk about buying defaulted notes and my first response to that was well not intelligently because i've only done that about seven or eight times myself i can tell you that if you will go to our archives on itunes there are easily half a dozen discussions with experts about buying defaulted notes. Uh, We did one recently, uh, last fall, I believe, with uh, Susie Berg and Saprina Allen. We've talked to Eddie Speed about those several times. Um, uh, There's an interview with uh, Dave, Dave, somebody from PPM. um, His name will come to me in a second. And between the three, four, or five of the uh, experts that I've interviewed. Uh, There's a pretty uh, lengthy, you know, four or five hours by the time you add it together discussion on Dave Van Horn, that's his name, uh, on uh, both defaulted first and second loans. I can say in general, uh, that is a strategy that is sort of coming into its own right now. It's, it's, something that people have obviously been doing for many, 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 many years, but it has increased enormously in popularity over the last uh, four or five years, partly because there are more defaulted loans to buy than there have been in the past, and partly because there have been some uh, very uh, energetic uh, uh, people out in the world speaking to real estate groups and so on uh, about the strategy and just making people aware of it. It is, uh, from my perspective as someone who's just bought a very few of them, it is a strategy that has a lot of potential both for profit and for helping the people whose defaulted loans you purchased, if they are willing to sit down with you and talk to you and tell them, tell you what they can and can't do in regards to maybe making payments after all, uh, it can be very beneficial for them. You know, they get a lower payment and a lower interest rate and often longer to pay that loan than the bank gave them. And because you are buying those loans, if you're doing it right, for pennies on the dollar of the cost uh, of the actual balance of the loan, it can be extremely profitable for you. However, like everything else in the real estate world, it is work. And the work in the defaulted note business is both in the front end of figuring out what it is you have and what the chances are that it is, in fact, going to reperform. And if it doesn't reperform, what the assets that you're going to end up owning is worth. And then you think you're done, you made your bid, you get it accepted, you think you're done, except that then there's the whole process of actually getting the loan to reperform or getting the property foreclosed on so that you can own it. And that's where that thing about, is this a good fit for me, comes in. Because it's it's lots of conversations with borrowers and sometimes their attorneys. Um, when things go well, the conversations are very pleasant and they're along the lines of, show me, show me your income and I will decide what you can reasonably pay. 
every month. And if that works for me, then we will start doing that. And hopefully we will keep doing that forever and everything's fine. Sometimes the conversations are more along the lines of the borrower telling you they're, they do not owe the money. They never owed the money. They never borrowed the money. They have no intention of paying. You can, um, come take, take their house if you want, because it's a vacant shell, blah, blah, blah. So it's uh, there's pros and cons just like with everything else. But uh, I do know a lot of people who are making a lot of money in that business and they are doing it the same way that everyone who makes money in this business does it, which is learning what they're doing first and then doing it, going out and implementing it correctly. So uh, thank you for your very general question, Win. Uh, please check out our archives on iTunes so that you can... Um, get a little more of a detailed discussion from folks who do that every single solitary day than I just gave you a question here via our website askvina.com that's how you're going to ask questions via the website is go to askvina.com this is from Tom who lives in Kentucky Tom says besides Craigslist and the RIA groups, what are the best ways to find buyers for your wholesale deals? Well, you, you sort of named the two big ones. You know, your, your, your local real estate association is a great place to go network and meet people and find out, you know, what they like, what they don't like, whether they're serious buyers or not. Uh, Cause not, not everyone at a real estate association is really at the point yet where they are able to pay cash for property the way you need them to if you're a wholesaler. Um, Craigslist, of course, refers to the idea of once you have a property under contract, you put that property up on Craigslist and advertise it as a handyman special and do disclose that you are, in fact, in contract with it and not trying to sell the house itself since you don't own the house itself. And beyond that, uh, there are there there are a couple of different ways that you can just you can sort of build a buyers list that are uh, they they are useful. They were they will turn up really good buyers from time to time. They they don't get them in quite the quantities that those two things get, but they are worth doing for sure. One is whenever I am you know driving for dollars or going to look at houses or whatever the case may be. And I see a dumpster sitting in front of a house and a building permit hung in the window. I typically assume that that's a rehab that's going on. But most homeowners don't get 30-yard dumpsters to clean house in the spring. It's usually for taking the walls out of the house and putting them in the dumpster. And uh, I I will usually, if there's anyone there, I'll stop by and knock on the door and say... Hey guys, what you doing? You rehabbing this house? What are you going to do with it? Are you going to rent it? Are you going to sell it? And get into a conversation. Uh, it turns out that sometimes the conversation I'm getting into is with the contractor and sometimes is with the person who bought the house. And uh, we chat about, the, you know, why, why is he like that particular neighborhood and what's he going to do to the house? And is he looking for any other houses? And if he finishes, when he finishes this deal, what's he going to do next? And so on. And uh, I can usually end that conversation by saying, hey, you know, why don't you give me your card? And if I find anything around here that looks like a really good deal for you, how about if I call you? And about 100% of the time they say yes. Another way to add buyers to your list is when you are marketing to sellers to say, particularly sellers who are landlords and things like that, to say, I'd like to buy your house. And you get one of these who calls and says, well, 
I am really happy with my house. I really like it. I think it's great. And I will only sell if you give me first pr full price, which happens very often with these uh, investor sellers. Uh, you, you flip the conversation on them and say, well, okay, so you're real happy. With, would you like to buy more in that neighborhood? And add them to your buyer's list that way. Um, other than that, I mean, th things that we have uh, tried over the years that, uh, you know, right now there's, there's a lot of buyers. Right now, if you have a, a good deal to sell, someone is going to buy it. It's not, not going to be a huge problem. But that was not the case in 2008 and 2009 when there were deals everywhere and there were fewer buyers than there had been in years past for the simple reason that no one was sure when the prices were going to stop cratering. I mean, we knew we knew that prices had already gone down 30% in some neighborhoods, 50 or 60%. And we didn't know when it was going to stop. So there were a lot of folks who normally would have been in the, in the market to buy properties who were kind of hanging back because they wanted to make sure that they felt like the market had bottomed out. And at that point, we spent a lot more time uh, trying to put folks who were potential buyers on our buyers list than we were trying to find deals because the deals were easy. And we did things like uh, advertising classes on how to I, something something of interest in, uh, to buyers. Like one of them I remember was how to find comps when there are no comps, how to find values of properties when nothing has sold in the neighborhood, which was also a big problem at that time. How to uh, find the best contractors, how to uh, borrow private money. Because if you'll remember, remember simultaneously with everything else, the banks stopped lending money. And we would bring people into those classes and we, we really, they really were classes. They were two to three hour long actual classes and at the end of the classes we'd pass out a form that said hey if you are in the market to buy properties we are we occasionally find them and you know if you'd like us to call you about certain properties uh, in certain areas fill this out and we pretty much had 100% of the people who would come to those classes filling out those forms but that is like that's like not really necessary in today's market because again, lots of buyers looking for deals in today's market. It was very necessary in 09. Uh, you're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week. I'd love to answer your questions, and I'm just about out of questions here via email. So if you have one, don't be shy about asking it. It's going to get answered. 877 772 or go to our website, askvina.com, fill in the response form, hit the send button. We'll get it here by email. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. You can call in any question you have about real estate investing at 877-772-9658 or you can send us an email. You just go to our website at askvina.com. While you're there, you can stay in touch with Real Life Real Estate throughout the week by simply filling in that little form that says add me to your email list. Every week we will send you a weekly e-letter about the upcoming show with an article for your education and edification and so on. Um, you can also get a free gift while you're there. It's a 27-page ebook called 12 Strategies for Negotiating with Sellers. That's 
at askvina.com, askvina, A-S-K-V like in Victor, E-N-A dot com. Uh, you can also keep in touch with Real Life Real Estate on Facebook at facebook.com slash real life real estate. Uh, let's see, we had one more question come in over the break here and let me find it. Ah, here we are. Um, gosh, can't answer that one. Uh, <laughs> this one is, uh, one that is, is asking for a recommendation on some specific classes and, uh, this being public radio, we don't really, um, you know, push particular products or speakers or gurus or classes other than to say, join your local real estate investors association, um, particularly your nonprofit RIAs, but uh, other groups, of course, as well. Uh, you can always get information about where your local RIA, and sometimes there's more than one, depending on the size of your city, might be by uh, just Googling Real Estate Investors Associations plus your city, uh, RIA groups plus your city. They're not all called RIAs. Sometimes they're called other things. So Real Estate Associations plus, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, let's see. Question here from Fred in Arizona. And this one is a little bit of a long question. He says, this is from Fred in Arizona. He says, listening to one of your shows with Mr. Ron Legrand regarding lease optioning properties, he mentioned approaching homeowners and offering to purchase the property for the balance of the mortgage. Question, assuming, I assume there is still a balance on the property. His example was the property was valued at, th- at 150 with a balance of 130 I assume that a bank holds a paper on this property. How does he assume the existing loan balance or does he just trying to figure it out because it seems like a great way to acquire properties to do lease options. Um, now for that uh, show with Ron was a while ago. We'll have him back on at some point here, but uh, I don't remember the specific example that he was giving, but assuming it is, as you say, what Ron talks about is really buying houses lease with option to buy. Now I say you can't you can't see me making the making the quotation symbol around the word buying because of course when you, Fred, are the lease option or or lease option E, excuse me, you're not really buying the property. The seller is renting you the property with a right to buy it at some time at some point in the future at some price. In the example you gave what the agreement would say is that you have the right to buy the property from the seller for $130,000 sometime within the next X years, you know, five years, 10 years, something like that. And there would be a monthly payment associated with that. And that would be a lease payment. And the idea here is that either you then assign that agreement that you have made to someone who's, who's going to live in the property in return for an upfront cash payment, because remember this house is worth 150 and you have it tied up for 130 with a certain monthly payment. Or alternatively, you do what is called a sandwich lease, meaning that uh, you stay in the middle, you pay the seller, let's say in this example, $1,000 a month rent, you are receiving $1,200 or $1,300 a month rent 
you owe the seller 130 at the exercise of the option, your buyer owes you 150 at the exercise of the option. So yes, there is an underlying mortgage, but your agreement, as Ron speaks about it, is not to take over the mortgage. It is that you are making the seller monthly payments that probably cover or maybe even a little bit more than cover the mortgage. So uh, you can, of course, re-listen to that program on our podcasts on iTunes. Uh, question here from Kevin, another note-buying question. And again, asking about training. Um, so I'm going, to, I'm going to answer this question in a non-specific way, <laughs> Kevin, because the, the question is, I've been hearing about successes with buying and selling, performing and non-performing note, what notes. What training would you recommend that will give you the basics and confidence to make your first note purchase? I can tell you what to look for in the training. I, I can't sit here and say, well, you know, get so-and-sos and so-and-sos and so-and-sos. I can say that um, a very important part of the training to buy notes is how to evaluate the notes. In other words, I'm being offered the opportunity to purchase this stream of income. And how do I decide how much to pay for that stream of income? Not just given that it's defaulted, but given a bunch of other factors. How how defaulted is it? Um, uh, is it a property that has a has someone living in it? Because that's a that's a note that's much more likely to what's called reperform. Uh, if the if the person who borrowed the money still lives in it, they clearly want to keep their house, right? Or they wouldn't live there anymore. Uh, versus one that's a rental property or that's even vacant, in which case it's not very likely to reperform because it's not there's no emo what they call emotional equity in that property. It's just an investment property for the borrower. Um, what is the value of the underlying loan? How defaulted is it? Uh, has the owner declared bankruptcy? Because sometimes you are offered to the opportunity to buy a note and mortgage where the note has actually been wiped out by a bankruptcy, which may or may not be a bad thing, depending on how much you are paying for the note and whether that, that would make it what maybe what's an easy deed in lieu of foreclosure. Not all of the courses that I have seen about buying notes gets into detail about this process. Some Some of them sort of skim over the idea of what goes into my decision about how much to pay for a note. Uh, and some of them are very detailed about it. And then uh, the research that you do on the property before you buy the note. Uh, how do you tell if the property is occupied if you live in Tempe and the property is in Las Vegas? You can, you're not going to drive by it, right? Uh, so what are the what are the tricks for finding out if it's still occupied? Like calling the water department, seeing if the water's still on. Like uh, hiring one of the many services that will uh, actually drive by the property and tell you whether it looks like it's occupied or not. Um, how do you get any idea of what the condition of the property might be? Now, when you buy notes, guess what? You don't get to look at the insides of the properties, particularly not if you are... Um, in the process of buying it. Like once you've bought the note, you can contact the borrower and you can ask them to come over to their house and they can say no, but at least you can ask. Uh, you're really guessing at what the interior condition 
of the property is. So uh, good ways to get decent guesses, right? Like calling the building department and asking if there's any orders on the property, like uh, looking for old MLS listings that maybe maybe the maybe the owner tried to sell when they went into default and. Uh, the MLS listing, although it's canceled now, might have some indication that it did or did not need work. So uh, like any course, like any um, boot camp, any kind of education that you're investing in, I think the crucial thing is to know that you are investing in something that is complete enough that when you walk away, you can actually do the thing that you've paid to learn how to do. And not all courses in any category are like that. So that's the thing that I would look at. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing, last chance on question and answer week. Give us a call at 877-772-9658, 877-772-9658, or email your question by going to our website at askvina.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. And a word to Tom in Kentucky. I don't know if you're aware of this, but when you send stuff through the Ask Vina contact form, I do see your email address. So sending multiple questions under different names does not fool me. You are still Tom from Kentucky. I don't mind the multiple questions. That's no problem. You just you don't have to use a pseudonym. I've now gotten like three different questions from the same email address, except, you know, they say different names on them. So Tom in Kentucky, I know who you are. His question is, what do you recommend to learn to, what do you recommend to learn to estimate repairs accurately? Also, when wholesaling, do you provide your estimates to buyers? Um, it turns out that there's only a fairly limited number of repairs and upgrades in single family homes that you're going to run into over and over and over and over and over. It's like 40, 40 to 45 things that happen in single family homes uh, very, very commonly. And so when you're first, when you're first out there looking at houses, it seems like there's something different wrong with every single solitary property. But realistically, if you walk into a kitchen that needs to be completely ripped out and redone, you're looking at the same upgrade as when you walk into a kitchen and there's no cabinets or appliances there, right? It's just actually the one with nothing in it is cheaper to rehab slightly because you don't have to worry about getting a dumpster to throw things away. So ultimately what you're going to do is work out or get a, uh, uh, there's a lot of folks who will provide you with like a, a, a starter list. Like these are, these are the things that are going to go wrong where things get a little confusing is that it might cost a different amount of money to put a roof on in Florida than it does in Cincinnati or in Newark, New Jersey. In fact, I'd like you to guess which one of those three costs the most per square for roofing. It's not Florida, it's Newark. <laughs> and the reasons can be anything, you know, the problem, the thing in Florida is they have to be, uh, the roofs have to be rated for a much higher wind load because of hurricanes. Uh, it costs about twice as much in Orlando, Florida to do a roof as I can get one done, the same roof, same size house done here in Cincinnati because of the uh, requirement for the higher 
wind ratings. And sometimes the problem is more of a regulatory one. Maybe you can only use union roofers, or maybe the cost to pull a permit for a roof is very, very high. And that seems to be the issue uh, up in the Newark area, where I have also done boot camps on wholesaling. So I've I've talked to the local folks there about what those things cost. Uh, so that part of it, you know, so so I have these, this list of things. Needs a new roof. Needs a new roof plus a tear-off. Needs a new roof plus tear-off plus sheeting. Needs uh, kitchen cabinets. Needs countertops. Needs blah, blah, blah. Is go to your local association and talk to people who are doing renovations and show them your list and say, is anything here uh, in terms of the repair costs like really off from what you're experiencing in your business? Oh, and also the costs change over time. When oil prices went way up, everything having to do with oil went way up. Carpet, vinyl windows, vinyl siding, um, the cost of transporting everything, but primarily uh, the costs of the things that had oil in them uh, went went way up very quickly. So uh, you want to recheck this every so often. I did that about uh, six months ago at our local RIA, just kind of went around to rehabbers and said, do these all still look right? And even then, you're going to have a wide variety of opinions, and you're kind of looking for the middle, right? You'll have people who say, oh, I can get a furnace put into a house for $800, and you explore what that means, and what that means is I'm using uh, an 80% efficient furnace, and I'm using, I'm really doing most of the work myself, I'm only using the HVAC guy to pull the permit, so that's lower than most people would pay, right? And then you'll have other people that say they spend $3,000 on the same furnace uh, when when the average seems to be like fifteen dollars to $1,800. And what you're really looking for is that average number for the reason that different, fairly experienced rehabbers have different costs on different items I typically don't give a detailed list of repair estimates to my buyers. Number one, they ought to be experienced enough to do their own estimates, right? I don't. I'm, I'm not. I'm not trying to go to a buyer and say this is what this will cost because if they're not experienced enough to go in there and do that themselves, I don't want to be selling them a deal. Secondly, we tend to when we used to do that, we would tend to get into arguments about with people where they'd say, "Well, you can't get a window done for two hundred fifty bucks." And I say, "Yeah, I absolutely can. Here's the place to go." Well, my window guy charges me four hundred dollars. I must be using better windows. Well, I doubt it. I think your window guy is just charging you a lot of money. And we would get into these little detailed arguments when, in fact, the overall numbers they agreed with. The overall, you know, I, I, I said twenty thousand dollars will rehab this property, and what they were arguing about was how much of that was windows, not whether it was really going to cost twenty thousand dollars to do the work. Uh, every once in a while, you will run across a buyer that, uh, despite you being good at rehab estimating and them knowing what their costs are, you you absolutely can't agree because their costs are just much higher typically than what a more average rehabber would pay for renovation. So what you're trying to do with this number is get within, you know, five, 10% of what most people would say that house would cost to renovate. You're not trying to get an exact number. You're not trying to lay out an argument as to why that number is what it is. You're just, you're trying to get pretty close, uh, make them a deal that if you're pretty close is a really good deal. And that's uh, one of the things that, 
uh, new wholesalers sometimes have a problem with is they want absolutely every number to be exactly right. I need I, I want to know exactly what it's going to sell for fixed up, and I want to know exactly what it's going to cost to fix. Well, neither one of those numbers is a really exact number. And that's that's just the way it is. And, you know, you come as close as lots of skill will allow you to come. And if it is a if based on those things, it is a good deal at the price at which you're offering it, you will sell it. Question from JC in Las Vegas. He says, how should I respond when tenants in a multifamily or two tenants in a multifamily getting into disputes amongst themselves and then wanting me to get involved? Their arguments do not relate to the property or the property condition to their responsibilities or nor do they violate their lease should I tell them to work it out without me wow that is a problem that is mostly endemic to small multifamilies like two and three family properties you get tenants who for whatever reason start getting into it and then they and as you say it it doesn't really have anything to do with the property it's more like um her kids make too much noise. Um, uh, she, I, I don't, I don't like the way she set her garbage cans out. That sort of thing, and they want you to tell the other tenant to do what they want the other tenant to do. And unfortunately, a lot of small landlords get sucked into that drama, and they do try to resolve it. And the bottom line is, if it doesn't have to do with your responsibilities, the tenant's responsibilities, the condition of the property, or some lease violation. There's nothing you can really do. Uh, yes, you can go talk to the other tenant and say say you're making the downstairs tenant unhappy, but you can't there's nothing you can really do to enforce that. So so what what you are doing is getting into their drama with them. And uh, you know, on some level humans find that satisfying, but it is not going to probably lead to anything good. Uh, typically in a situation like that, where it truly is just some kind of personal conflict that they're trying to drag the, the property owner into, uh, the most you can do is maybe make, make a single phone call to the theoretically offending party and say, look, you're making this guy unhappy. He's dragging me into it. Please stop making him unhappy. And then of course, what you will get is a litany from that tenant about what the other tenant is doing. So generally you know what, guys, you need to work this out yourselves. This this doesn't really have to do with me or the property or anything else. And I understand that you think it does because you both live in the property, but that's just a coincidence. This is this is a personal thing. And leave it at that. And in all likelihood, you will lose one or the other of the tenants, but sometimes that's better than the drama. So thanks, everybody, for your questions here on Question and Answer Week. Appreciate everybody who took the time and uh, who took the time to listen today as well. We will be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.